0: And
1: guests, we're
0: going to call the meeting tomorrow, so, would you please take them in? Trustee Banerjee? Yeah. Yeah. Here. Trustee Charles, Here. Trustee Chiquan? Present. Trustee Lawrence? Here. Trustee Thompson? Present. We have gone. All right, thank, thank you. you. Um, let's get to the first action. Um, Second. All in favor? Aye. All right, so move. So, moving on to our um, first session with Diana Daniels. Uh, so thank you, Diana, and she, you are going to present um, our, our Pharmacy 340 drug, drug Program. So thank you. This so is something we've been tracking for a long time, so good to have this session. Well, thank
2: you for having me. Um, I'm Diana Tamarin, the System Director of Pharmacy, uh, and uh, I'm co-presenting today with Rick Kibler, our VP of Internal Audit and Compliance. So uh, we'll be providing a brief presentation today on the 340B Drug Pricing Program. We'll provide some uh, background information, share the necessary elements of maintaining compliance, um, as well as what we have done to sustain these efforts ongoing. So some uh, background information here, it was created in Congress in the early 90s. And the 340 b drug pricing program provides um, expanded medication access to our most vulnerable and uninsured patients. So in the early 90s when the federal government was faced with rising pharmaceutical costs associated with the Medicaid and Medicare programs, they implemented the Medicaid rebate program which um, for drug manufacturers as a condition of their participation had to provide rebates to the federal government. So uh, during that time, Congress wanted to expand that discount to eligible hospitals and clinics and it was called the Section 340B of the Public Health Service Act. So this is a federal drug discount program where drug manufacturers offer a front-end discount to eligible covered entities, which are typically disproportionate share hospitals, federally qualified health centers, and it is limited to covered outpatient drugs only. So the intention of this program is to uh, stretch federally scarce dollars um, for our uh, vulnerable patient populations. So the next slide, uh, this is our current footprint of covered entities within our system that in the eyes of HRSA are considered covered entities. We have our disproportionate share hospitals, Highland, Alameda, John George, Vermont, and our FQHCs, which are our freestanding clinics, Eastmont, Hayward, and Newark.
3: So, um... Can I ask a question? Why does it say child site mm-hmm. for John George? I mean, it's mm-hmm. predominantly adult facility.
2: Oh, so, um... HRSA defines covered entities as a parent site and a child site. So depending ah. mm-hmm. so depending on how the, how the health centers are licensed, um, the Highland Hospital dish... Um, so it's
3: not child like EHO, it's child exactly. as in... Okay, child of the parent organization. Exactly, well, there we go. Yes. Thank you very
4: much.
2: Yes, sure. Uh, so, so of high interest, of course, is you know, how much money are we saving? Uh, as an as a, um, organization when we participate in the 340B program. So how this is calculated is we look at how much we would have spent on pharmaceuticals have we not participated in 340B? Typically, um, the average discount is about 20 to 50%. The number of 17.7 million in 340B savings is calculated uh, from looking at our Cardinal, which is our drug wholesaler, the purchases, the prices that we paid versus what we would have paid. We then um, go ahead and uh, minus our expenses, so our contract pharmacy costs, which are the CVS pharmacy contracts that we have with our freestanding clinics to provide medications to our health pack population. Um, associated technology that's uh, necessary to maintain compliance with um, managing drug inventory. Uh, we particularly belong to 340B Advocacy Group, which um, the Americas Essential Hospital sponsors as, long as, as well as the California Associate, Association of Public Hospitals and large health networks in general. Also our outpatient pharmacy um, retail operation that we have here on the Highland Campus. So the 340B savings minus expenses is about 14.5 million, which um, allows AHS to reinvest in um, providing more comprehensive patient care. So when we look at um, what are some areas of vulnerability that HRSA typically finds in covered entities that participate in 340B are areas such as duplicate discount or diversion. So as I mentioned earlier, um, that the federal government gets rebates from drug manufacturers that participate in Medicaid and Medicare. Well, uh, when covered entities purchase 340B drugs on the front end, there is a potential for a duplicate discount in that if we don't code those claims correctly, that the state would then go and pursue a rebate from the drug manufacturer, and that's when you have a duplicate discount. Another area where um, there there's a vulnerability in general for covered entities is a is diversion, where covered outpatient drugs are provided or administered to individuals who are actually in an inpatient environment. So for for uh, hospitals, that's that's you know, generally difficult to track because there are mixed-use areas like the ED where you're serving both inpatient and outpatient status. So HRSA audited Highland Hospital back in October of 2015 and resulted in manufacturer repayments totaling um, 5.5 in duplicate discounts and 500,000 for diversion. Luckily, we were able to negotiate with the state and that was reduced to five hundred thousand. And <laughs> one So, so the reason why that occurred was when we looked at diversion um, uh, in the HCP fourth floor, the cardiology um, the cardiology diagnostic unit, where they do echocardiograms and ECGs. There was um, contrast dye that we had purchased on the 340B account. And was supposed to be administered in an outpatient environment in the clinic, but what had happened was that the um, the technicians were pulling the contrast dye and taking the, the diagnostic equipment to the inpatient unit and doing echocardiograms there. And so they were that's a diversion when you're taking covered outpatient drug purchased on 340B and then administering it in an inpatient setting. Um, so we so we we fixed that. The duplicate discounts were due to um, medication billing that did not have a flag on it that would that would allow the state to see this as um, a medication that was purchased on 340B. So when that modifier wasn't there, the state would then go directly to the drug manufacturer and ask for that rebate.
5: Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, so this is the, the issue So now. that was just kind of sloppy work? Yeah, so so this is what
6: we've been talking about uh, for the last couple of years because mm-hmm. I've been doing the negotiations trying to get each manufacturer to go back and get credits from uh, the state instead of pursuing uh, monetary payments from us. And so uh, we were successful in doing that, and that's how we got the penalties reduced down to half a million dollars. Uh, And we've been looking at the the modifiers to make sure that we have those reported. so that we don't get in this position again.
2: So what we've done um, is we've created a 340B oversight committee that um, had not existed previously. And this was created to provide accountability measures for our organization to meet HRSA criteria. We continuously monitor very complex program parameters. And I've included some here for you. Um, I'll go ahead and and highlight just a couple. So adherence to the GPO prohibition. What what we have found is
3: what's GPO?
2: GPO is drug purchasing. Yeah, exactly. So um, all covered Mm -hmm. entities that participate in 340B drug purchasing cannot purchase covered outpatient drugs on a GPO account. So um, typically, if you're a pharmacy buyer and you log into you know your drug purchasing website and you see two prices, you're going to pick the cheapest one,
4: mm-hmm. right?
2: You just want to buy what's cheap. However, sometimes the GPO price is cheaper than 340B, where you can't just pick the GPO price if you're if you're purchasing 340B, you're all in. You can't cherry pick.
0: Um,
2: so that you know that that's just one example of of how um, uh, you know, a, an employee wants to be a financial steward of the organization. Wants to purchase the most inexpensive option. Well, that is that is um, a violation mm-hmm. of, of the three hundred and forty B program.
5: And how does that in service work with with staff? Is it on a one to one? Is it group mm-hmm. group training? What what? How does that occur?
2: So it happens um, in weekly uh, huddles, staff huddles, um, and then there's also. Um, part of their annual evaluation so it's performance performance-based um, but that's typically how we have education and accountability and the performance based
5: i mean that's kind of down the road so i was thinking about the correction of uh, mm-hmm. behavior. so um, yeah that's how it occurs in your weekly
2: so i can move forward to this last slide where um we we do monthly. We do monthly. There's a typo. We do monthly audits that are reported on a quarterly basis, and these are the audits where we where we find exactly. You know what, what you're mentioning is um, instead of every 12 months, right? We find an issue and it's a, a retroactive teaching. We do it on a monthly basis if we were to find something. Um, so, so can I ask you? So this oversight
0: committee came into being after the HOSA site visit and they docked mm-hmm. us for the 340 uh, diversion and duplication. But it's, it's something that's going to go ongoing until
2: forever. Yeah. So we, we will have we will have a 340B oversight committee for as long as we participate in the 340B drug program. Okay,
0: so that's part of the program. When you mm-hmm. do when you participate in it, you have an oversight committee for that. Exactly. And will the new EHR help with any of of this as well? So.
2: So what I see the new EHR helping is in the charge description master reconciliation of charge errors. Um, so the CDM currently. Um, in our in our EHR is in Sorian financials. Um, and data feeds into Sorian financials from a isolated pharmacy software system. With Epic all of that we will we'll have one source of truth. Whereas in our current state we have multiple sources of non truth. And one source of truth, and there's a very manual process to to link all of it together, um, and that's where we have found that there's there's highest ch- uh, highest probability of it breaking down, right? Uh, because we're relying on this very manual process. With Epic, we're seeing we're going to um, anticipate that there will be less of that. Thank you.
6: You want to put
2: to the committee structure. Yeah, sure. So the committee structure. Um, I just wanted to point it out that this is this is a collaborative effort. Um, our executive sponsor is Luis Fonseca. The authorizing officials that are registered um, on the HERSA database are our CAOs on all of our covered entities. Our general counsel, Mike Moy, um, is on the committee. Uh, Rick Kibler for compliance. The pharmacy directors throughout the system. Also on committee, we have support staff. These are not full FTEs. These are pharmacy technicians that, as a portion of their job, dedicate their time to 340B auditing, um, and then our finance and revenue cycle team.
6: So one of the things that we do is uh, these monthly audits report out quarterly. Um, there is still room for error because we might find an issue, but we're finding it on a more timely basis than we did before. We're not waiting for HRSA to come back in and audit us and and say, oh, my God, this is, you know, you've got a huge finding. Mm -hmm. So uh, we're we're trying to keep that up. We uh, look at the way that uh, the claims are being calculated. We look at the way that uh, we're putting it on the bill. We, you know, try to look at all the different components that impact 340B uh, compliance and make sure that we're doing everything right and if we see any glitch it's immediate corrective action
1: okay. so I, I i have a rookie question so you, you the system receives a discount for the pharmaceutical but how do we pay for the rest of the how do we pay the bill is it do we build medi cal medicare i mean what's uh, What's the full picture from a revenue perspective for, um, for costs? Oh, yeah, we costs. Okay. We, um,
7: we pay for the drugs. We get a rebate. and Money comes back. Um, we bill for the services that we provide and get payments from that and Medicare. And to the extent that we think we have unreimbursed costs, drug costs, anything, it goes on a, what's called a P-14 cost report which we submit and gets used for a variety of um, these programs, all these reimbursement programs, <clears throat> and gets allocated out. And they say, okay, well, in this case, you know, you weren't paid this much for drugs, so that's in this amount that you get back the top Thank, Thank
0: you.
7: Thank
0: you. Thank you very much. And my apologies. I think, uh, Louise, this is your first um, meeting. So uh, uh, I, I need to introduce you. Rick Givler is a... Uh, um, of internal audit and compliance, and this time as you know, you've heard about her in our previous. You were at the full uh, board meeting or at the last finance meeting, one of those time. with the Care Fusion thing. So thank you for um, all that you do. I know this pharmacy for H S is a huge deal, so thank you. Thank you. Questions? No. All right. Thank you. So, Moving on, um, I'll turn it over to um, Mr. Kibler for our internal com- compliance yes. risk assessment.
6: Thank, Thank you, you Very much. Okay, uh, so my first item would be the compliance risk assessment. And uh, as many of you know, when CRG was in here doing their assessment of the <laughs> compliance, system, they said I needed a more robust uh, risk assessment process. Uh, Previously, I had done this at a high level for internal audit. Uh, We identified uh, maybe 90 areas for review. We compiled scores, (coughs) uh, identified high-risk areas, and then based our audit plan on that. So uh, for this year, I polled the uh, members of management, asked them to identify the risks within their area, uh, took that information. How section- many
5: people you are talking about polling?
6: I polled about 70 uh, managers, directors, VPs uh, to help identify the risks. And this is a, a, going to be a dynamic document. It's going to keep growing. Mm-hmm. Um, but then I supplemented what they gave me with uh, uh, professional publications that I found that identified other potential risks and put them on there and and evaluated all those. And I've given you the formula that I used with the impact frequency minus the mitigating controls uh, equals a total risk score. And so within each one of those, I had a number of factors that uh, came up with that total score
5: you know could, could I, I, I didn't understand um i understand how you calculated and gave it a score mm-hmm. but a risk about what patient mm-hmm. safety finance risk about what
6: compliance is what i'm looking for are we going to is there a potential risk that we're going to be in violation we're going to be of, on something of a law regulation
0: okay, okay.
6: So, we're going to have a risk of financial impact because we do something
0: wrong. Yeah, at at QPSC, we heard Dr. Hussein and their talk about safety and the fall and compliance. Mm -hmm. So when it's patient quality and safety and all of that, compliance goes into the VP of quality, but when it's a financial regulatory, that kind of risk that the organization faces, then it's under the purview of um, Mr. Kibler. So we are out of compliance for regulations. Okay. Uh, and those guys even do the accreditation, right? Like the VP quality to maintain that our accreditation and all of that. But we do more financial risks, Okay, legal and financial.
8: When you're scoring, do you take into account the OIG work plan year? Does that increase the risk factor if the OIG is looking at something in any particular year? Uh,
6: it could, because if they're concerned about it, then I have to be more concerned yeah. and uh, would elevate that a little bit, uh, because if they think that there's problems in this area, then, yeah, you know, we might have those
8: kind of problems, too. Or they might be coming around looking at right? Yes, and we don't like them here.
6: <laughs> so <laughs> yeah. based on, nice people. on my... Uh, of management and identification of risks on my own. I came up with 212 different uh, potential risks and did the evaluation on each of those. And uh, I arbitrarily decided that if you're under 100, you're low risk. If you're under 200, you're medium risk. And if you're over 200 or over, you're a potential high risk. Now, there was nothing magic in that formula it was uh, a cutoff and it could be moved up or down depending on what i see as i start going through some of those areas and you know next year it could change and maybe 180 is a high risk or it might be even 220 but it's kind of an arbitrary decision on my part Uh, but i've identified 30 areas that were considered high risk based on my evaluation, and I will be uh, selecting some of those for audit, uh, that, for my audit plan for uh, presentation at the June meeting.
8: I'm asking about EPIC, right, which is, of course, number one on the list, right? Aren't there a number of things under that EPIC implementation?
6: That, that you're going to have to be looking at? Yes. But at this point, it's just kind of the whole thing. How are they planning it out? What are they going to do? And it's my understanding that uh, it's going to be pretty much out of the box. There's not going to be a lot of customization, which is, is what I think really hurt us on the Sorian financial implementation is that We took the canned package, and then we customized it to suit our needs, and some of those things we didn't do well on. Uh,
8: But aren't there a set of expectations uh, that Kaiser has as well? And Should they be part of kind of what you're looking at, that we're meeting the expectations of Kaiser?
9: They're not necessarily regulatory in the sense that they are. Those those uh, expectations, as I mentioned before, they come directly out of the plan with Epic. Yeah, um, for the most part, in terms of the schedule um, on which we will uh, complete various phases of the project. So, um, so that is more on the plan than what what we put in the uh, agreement with Kaiser. Okay.
6: And that certainly would be considered, if I was doing a review in EPIC, that I would look at those expectations and see how we're meeting them.
5: What's the difference between
6: a real bed and a virtual bed? A real bed actually exists. A virtual bed is, uh, uh,
7: yeah, it's it's in the computer. It says, you know, virtual bed one, patient could be laying in a gurney in the ED, but... Uh, Tensa so it's he's not admitted a, and he's okay. an you Yeah, in, in the computer. So charges can be applied. to that
4: yeah.
1: uh, Just quick 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 quick. so, I, just back to the, to the last uh, series of questions on Epic. It, it, is it fair to assume that this will be a relative process? That, for example, on Epic, you might actually expand out and break out pieces later yes, as you're beginning yeah, okay. Yes. Uh, so.
6: This is what I know at at this point in time. And as I learn more, and and one of the things that I'm doing, uh, we have the Leadership Academy Compliance Skills Lab. uh, Three and a half hour session to train all supervisors and above in uh, compliance issues. Uh, And one of the homework assignments is that I ask each one of those people to bring in the top three to five risks within their area, and we compile them during the uh, course, and then I come back and look to see if any of them are new things that I haven't identified already, and uh, I actually have supplemented the list from the first two skill labs that we did, and so I I will continue that exercise, uh, try to identify more potential risks, and as I learn more about EPIC, then it might be broken down. Uh, when I reviewed this with uh, senior management, uh, there was a thought that I should break it down between EPIC financials and EPIC mm-hmm. clinicals. And I actually did the scoring, and they came out the same. So I was like, no, nah, I'm not doing that right. <laughs> uh, me yes, it, it will expand.
0: I, I was intrigued at seeing a um, you know, fairly high-medium risk for one of our, our biggest providers of care. And I called Rick to ask him, like, what do you mean when you see that our provider group is high-risk? And Rick, you explained that Sorry. to me, but I also wanted to, when, when, I'd like you to, you know, share that with the committee but also to ask David that when we do contract negotiations with the provider group this kind of risk does is that connection of dots there so if uh, Rick you would explain for us what the risk with care is and then we can talk about it
6: so Oak care is uh, a large medical group and you, uh, a lot of you saw the contract in the last uh, meeting they they've got a, a good chunk of our Physician business.
3: Yeah, that was just ED for two hospitals, so
4: yeah.
6: And, you know, plus the work that they're doing here at, at Highland and the ED and GME program. And, and uh, there's a number of potential issues with that group uh, or with any doctor group that uh, potential start violations or uh, potential kickback uh, issues uh, financial control issues, so I put them on there and evaluated that to see if it was something that should be considered for additional audit uh, versus just uh, ongoing work.
0: So such as financial issues, such as, give us an example.
7: Um, Obviously we do a projection on what the performance is. We have um, uh, invoicing, requirements for proper invoicing so we can review. you know, we have uh, controls over mm-hmm. amendments, adjustments, additions to the contract when new providers come on.
1: So uh,
6: yeah. additionally, in the past, yeah. we had some uh, issues with them following yeah. AHS policies and practices and for reimbursement of uh, <coughs> expenses and that type of thing. So it's one of those things that we need to keep our eye on. But yeah. you have
10: to Yeah, and just to be clear, you know, it says ERP oh, care okay, on here, but this, you know, any large group There's of medical providers, providers so are basically it's the same is. sort of risk that you're talking uh, about. And it has nothing to do with that particular organization uh, or necessarily the way that organization operates. Whenever you have this many providers providing services to you, you're going to have to start you know, any kickbacks, small claims, Uh, False claim act issues that present risks, and the degree of the risk is simply the scope of the services they provide and the opportunities that you have to exert control over them. So, you know, with so this is not peculiar to Oak Care, there may be some aspects that are peculiar to Oak Care based upon. Uh, our past uh, experience with them but the as fact a factual matter this is more about the fact of our obligation to understand this relationship and that it does present this special set of risks for us to deal with
0: and because they, the volume of um docs is so large that, the, uh, that it, it it shows up so when we when we do contracts contract negotiations with them and like, do they see, like, past history of where uh, they've charged us, mm-hmm. you know, like, X number of your docs? Like, overcharge us for this, or do we have kickbacks yeah, um, and things, um, so we expect HP. Yeah. I mean, first of all, most
7: of the contract negotiations are actually conducted by Dr. Jamaluddin yeah. uh, okay. and or his, his designee. Um, <coughs> contracting actually reports to legal. Uh, it's the process is designed to uh, encompass both financial oversight and legal oversight, but we may not be directly involved. And there's a variety of um, reports, typically you you want to get a fair market value and that would be shared with them to get the parties on the same page of what the market is.
0: Yeah, it's just that it's not the intention, but they've been here for so long and they do things a certain way. So it's that education to say this is our policy, this is the AHP policy, or this is the AHS policy, and this is what you need to follow now that you're coming into that fold, I guess.
10: Well, I, I do believe that that was a significant uh, element of the contract negotiation this time. And just, you know, reflect back on the reports that um, Dr. Jamaluddin and uh, Ms. Avila had given, uh, describing it. You know, they essentially, you know, reset mm-hmm. the dial with Oak Care in the course of this negotiation with regard to performance expectations uh, in particular. And I believe they actually had a full-day retreat to talk about those standards. So. Thank you. And for, for fair market value, are
8: you using just like an AMGA or an MGMA to, uh, to yeah, determine I
10: compensation and then? So, sort of, then I so there's a couple different ways we do fair market valuations. Um, it depends on the position and the, the level of potential complexity. Um, we do have access to MGMA, the MGMA database. <coughs> Excuse me. In the MD uh, Ranger, and those are essentially databases of physician compensation paid throughout the country for various service lines, right. um, and then the associated benefits. So, in some instances, uh, we may do the analysis our own on our own using those uh, databases. Uh, the majority of the FMVs are conducted uh, through a program that we've purchased through Carnahan Group, um, and essentially it's an electronic process where we. Uh, plug-in data related to the potential hires so this would include you know the service uh, the number of hours expected to work the number of call hours benefits you know things that all go into what's going to comprise the compensation um, that program essentially conducts an analysis and that analysis is based upon every database that they have access to that provides that information and then they uh, give us a opinion as to whether or not there is a um, uh, it an issue regarding the proposed compensation for the opinion. Mm-hmm. And essentially uh, it's all automated uh, at least in the initial phases, and uh, there's essentially three levels of opinion uh, that you get in Uh, The first level basically is there's no FMV issue here. Um, There's a second level that if there are potential issues, meaning that you might have a piece of the compensation which is out of line or something that might present a problem, it will flag that for you and give you a a suggested solution. And then the third level is essentially you need to talk to us about this before you go any further uh, with it. And so that basically forms the basis for at least the initial review of the fair market value, because you, first you have to determine whether or not it's the fair market value, where it fits within the range, uh, and then you have to determine whether or not that notwithstanding you are paying what's called a commercial reasonable uh, price for those services. And so uh, essentially the contracting team uh, obtains the fair market value data, and then in the course of legal review there's a analysis of that fair market value data along with the commercial reasonableness before signing off on the contract. Got it. Good.
6: Thank
0: you. Any other questions about the risk categories?
6: This this will be the basis of my uh, audit and compliance plan that I'll be presenting at the June meeting.
0: And the mitigation plan will again go back to those same units that have come up with these things, and they will be having a plan of like these other risks. How do we, uh, how do we, you know, mitigate that and reduce the risk? Is that
6: uh, uh, you know? it, once I do the review, then I would identify the, the problems within that area, and okay. then they would be developing the uh, action plan.
8: Okay. The you other know, one thing I'm going to say, I've you know, reviewed a number of these plans, but I've never seen one as comprehensive as this, with this it's kind of gratification, I just commend you. I, I, this is amazing. This is just a summary sheet. The,
6: the actual spreadsheet is 212 uh, pages with supporting the information, and it's like...
3: I'm sure the light's dim when you open that program. <laughs> <laughs> no, I didn't want to put it on the board effects because <laughs> <so laughs> yeah, no, it, uh, it, it's, it's an amazing, Dr. It Ray. Really. It's
8: like a man. T- thank you,
4: Okay? I
5: think he needs a life. He needs
3: to get alive. <laughs> <laughs> so, you? No, no, no. want to see it?
5: <laughs> no, no. I think you ought to get a life.
6: Okay, so the next item was the uh, charter, and we had talked about this at the last meeting. I had made some uh, uh, edits to it, and then I got some additional edits uh, from the committee. And so on page 29 of the package is the uh, final
1: edited version. I'll certainly move. uh, I'll second.
0: We have some so, questions yes. too. Yeah, yes. No, I'm just giving yeah. Yeah. Good, good. Good. No, that's great. Sorry, okay.
6: um, so there was one change that I was going to recommend to the <coughs> uh, charter as it was written, and that would be under three point one, mm-hmm. uh, the second paragraph. The VP Internal Audit Corporate Compliance Officer, and, uh, blah blah blah, should report directly to the CEO. Uh, so, actually, it should say, "I would report directly to the board Correct. and administratively Correct. to Correct. somebody." Yeah. And we've had some discussions about whether that should be CEO or uh, general counsel, as it is currently. And so,
3: I think this committee and. Couple of times have suggested that we move it to the CEO so as an adoption right. of a best practice. Yeah. yeah.
0: So that we are in agreement with. So we say yeah. report directly to the board and administratively to the CEO. To the board
3: audit and compliance committee. To the board and yeah. administratively to the CEO. Right.
10: Yeah. I, yeah. And I, mean, I will just point out, I'm not really disagreeing with that, but. uh, I think that what that reflects is the guidance from the Office of the uh, Inspector General and their preference that the uh, compliance officer uh, report directly to the board uh, and have that unfettered access. Mm -hmm. You know, I I just returned from a conference. There were 42 general counsels at the conference, Um, of those 42, I would say, by a ratio of about three to one, uh, they were also in charge of compliance for their organizations, um, and so there is an acknowledgement of what the OIG standard is and what they've set for. Uh, but it still tends to be the practice that compliance ends up falling the legal. And I'm not again, I'm not advocating for it. Mm-hmm. any change here. Uh, I just wanted you know, to give you that context. You know, it's what. What's and the
0: reality in the field?
10: Yes, and there was actually a. Uh, uh, one of the seminar presentations, or um, in the conference, was the debate over whether or not compliance should be a standalone function or whether or not compliance should be reporting to some other piece of the organization, as far as it goes. And there were essentially three different viewpoints that were expressed there. And so there was a, you know, legal uh, general counsel slash compliance officer, and then there was a compliance officer and his or her general counsel who, you know, each reported directly, you know, to the CEO. And that was a fairly, you know, rough, robust discussion. You know, I think that the upshot of it is that there does seem to be a trend towards, you know, them, uh compliance and legal being, you know, put together uh, for a variety of reasons. Sometimes it's, you know, uh, the availability of the attorney-client privilege. You know, sometimes it is, uh, you know, just because of the the structure of the organization generally. I think that one, you know, most important piece, though, is that it is a question of the working relationship between the compliance officer and the general counsel um, and the Compliance officers sense that you know he or she has the requisite independence to do their job, uh, because everything else is form over substance, and you can have them you know report to whomever. If there's not a good collaboration, you know between those two functions, and if the compliance officer doesn't feel they have independence, then it really doesn't matter who they report to. know otherwise like that so uh, I just think that's it that's I think is the important thing for this committee to keep its eye on in terms of evaluating whether or not the the structure of the office, meaning where it sits in the organization and how it functions, is in fact effective. Because if those two things aren't happening, then it really doesn't matter who Rick is reporting to or. Should our board.
3: charter then say have imme- have un- access to the general counsel um, and, re- and administratively to the CEO? Well, I, I, I Again, I don't, I don't
10: think that that's something that you know, can or should be legislated. There has to be, I think, a na- natural collaboration, you know, between the legal function and the compliance function. They're I would
0: assume that, yeah, that those two work really close together. And um, But if that needs to be, like, what is the will of the...
10: Uh, no, I, I, I'm looking at this from the standpoint of the committee, when it's doing its job, that's what your focus should be on, and Absolutely. not just simply the fact that the compliance officer reports this person or that person.
0: And that's been our emphasis right from the beginning, that Rick has complete independence in what he does has unfettered access to the audit and compliance committee to the board and uh, ultimately our compliance plan drives our value our integrity and of uh, uh, so to be administratively working with um, the CEO is the best uh, the best practice with OIG and I think that that's something that we um, as a group of Leon. Yeah. so. So is that with that wording change? Is there anything? <coughs> any other comments? Any other amendments? No. So Rebecca, that works for you then?
9: Yeah. I, I mean, I, because <coughs> excuse mm-hmm. me, uh, we started in December as a, in the last meeting. Uh, uh, suggested uh, we do our one on ones comes to our executive leadership team meeting, uh, the only difference is now I need to now do his performance appraisal in conjunction with you all, and also manage, I guess, or oversee his performance of leading his team, Mm -hmm. which is not things that I currently do. So if this is the will of the group, I I don't intend to, to fight it. I have no issue with
4: it.
0: And the process remains the same, you all just, you know, as you're meeting on a monthly basis you do and we haven't specified we have i think there is a specification over here because though he reports directly to the board we interact with him four times a year so that that the performance of evaluation be a much more kind of 360 where it's you it's his team it's us because we are all interfacing in in, you know different levels of engagement compared to What you might do with you know your other C suite Mm -hmm. uh, as well, so all right.
3: Okay. Mm -hmm.
0: So do we have a motion to accept?
3: You have a motion and a second. You just need to call a vote. Oh, 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 table. Aye.
0: All right. Any opposed? No abstentions. Okay. Moving on to our code of conduct document. Okay,
6: the code of conduct is. a short little document, (laughs) uh, kind of setting the stage for uh, our expectations of our workforce and uh, what they're supposed to do, how they're supposed to act, what they're supposed to report. Uh, So, can I move approval?
3: I'll
5: second.
0: Okay, I had a few um, comments. Is this? Wouldn't this be applicable to board, staff, volunteers, everybody, and it's just workforce? It doesn't say. I I, I think we should have an integrated code of conduct that applies to all. So, can uh, we do that?
6: So on page two, all workforce members, which includes employees, contracts, uh, contract employees, volunteers, providers and others engaged in our work environment, right. so it's
3: right here. Right. If you
6: yeah. are hanging out here, this is your Bible, so this
3: And everyone has to sign that they've read it and received it?
6: That's how we're going to roll it out. Yeah.
0: That's good. I so just, I looked at Mayo and Johns Hopkins, and in that they did say, so they did, we've got all of those that uh, they, definitely said anyone who's in volunteer capability also has to follow this. And they had an integrated one for, you know, that the same code of conduct that's applicable to the employees should, the board should, should apply to the board as well. So I wonder, do so, we So we do have a
10: set <coughs> code of conduct, uh, you know, in California because of the Brown Act, there <coughs> and certain government code provisions which apply uh, to members of the governing board which do not apply to employees. So that's why in other states they don't have that. That's why they may have, you know, it all integrated. One other point I should mention is that the uh, board, uh, should you approve this this evening, there is going to be an uh, an obligation for us to meet and confer with our various unions over the the content Mm -hmm. of this code of conduct. Uh, uh, to the extent that uh, we will require employees to sign off on it. So there is the possibility in the course of those discussions that there might be minor changes, you know, to the language. Um, it made more sense for us to complete it, have your approval of it.
3: Has Mr. Redmond reviewed it to see if it's generally okay? He, yes.
10: has, he has reviewed it, uh, and he does not have any concerns, but we have to go through that process. Mm-hmm. I'm not anticipating that there would be any changes, but there's a possibility. This may need to come back here with a couple of items identified if it okay. does come up in the course of that process.
5: So will you talk a little bit about the rollout process, how this gets to employees and to all those that you mentioned?
6: I don't have a rollout process yet. Uh, what we were planning to do uh, was to print That's
5: honest, that's okay. You yeah, can yeah. come back and give us one, so...
6: I will. Uh, I was, only was going to take a certain amount of time to uh, work this through the unions, and yeah, right. so I was going to be developing the rollout plan uh, from there, but uh, it's, it's pretty much... Uh, get this in front of HR, uh, get uh, pamphlets printed up, uh, have some training sessions with the organization to get this rolled out and get a process in place to get all new employees coming in to uh, sign off on this and uh, develop the tracking mechanism so that we know that everyone's uh, gotten their version and signed off on it.
5: And kept their version. That's often what happens: is you get a sign off and you collect it, and nobody. So well, you'll you'll work it out. Yes. Uh, so, would you? Could you come back? Could I ask the chair to ask to come back to? Absolutely. Uh, so
0: that we can know what the
5: rollout is.
0: Absolutely. Yes. So. Okay. And, okay. And you know, it may take you six months. So whatever. I just. Okay.
1: And this may be an opportunity to have a values conversation that we don't normally have an opportunity to have with
4: employees. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean,
6: other than supervisor and above that I get to see monthly. <laughs> right.
0: <laughs> and uh, I don't know if it's in the um, framework of this, but also as we are thinking of the budget for 2019. Uh, we, this program, the compliance program, has to be really robust, so think about your staffing as well, Rick, and think about what we need to do to make sure that this is implemented system-wide, what's needed so that those conversations happen as, as the budget discussions and FTE discussions are happening. <coughs> all right, so I think we do have a motion all in favor. Uh, like. all right. yes. Right, thank you. Next on our agenda is <laughs> status reports,
5: right? <laughs>
3: and yes, annual plan, internal audit and compliance annual plan.
6: Okay, that would be p- page 57. Mm-hmm. Correct. If you're looking at the package. Uh, so these are all written reports. Uh, I, I will say that I am behind schedule because I did not anticipate the Leadership Academy, and building a a three-and-a-half-hour compliance module that was interactive uh, took some time, because I didn't want to throw something out there that wasn't uh, quality work. So we spent a couple of months uh, working that as a team, and uh, are going to be doing that about once a month for the next year and a half uh, Mm -hmm. that we do uh, this skills lab. So that put me behind a little bit and also because I had two of my largest audits at the start of the year and they've been uh, taking on a life of their own. But I'm kind of reallocating some resources and uh, I... What's
3: the highest risk thing that you're behind on? Uh,
6: I think it's the I am to uh, sorry, in financial reconciliation, uh, in Genius Med, uh, I'm concerned that maybe all charges aren't crossing over from one system to the other, and then uh, going into a build status. Uh, and I want to get that work done so that I can uh, identify potential opportunities to build. Uh, charges that haven't been built before.
3: Do you think you'll get it done this fiscal year? Excuse me, Trustee Lawrence.
6: Yes, I I think it will be done uh, probably by June.
5: June? I was just going to say, you you shouldn't feel apologetic about the in-services, because in my view, what I see is that prevention is a whole lot better than remediation, and most of the work that you do is you go back to kind of pick up the problems, if you can in-service people ahead of time it may, in fact, reduce the amount of work that you will be doing later on because mm.
4: that, because you true. have
5: informed them. So. so
6: it didn't take a lot of convincing when HR approached me and asked me to develop the skills lab. It was an opportunity that I couldn't pass up. I think it's, so, yeah. too. I think it's, it's, it's a chance to do live training right. to all of management. Yeah. Uh, so yeah. it's, it's worth my while.
5: I, I would say, too, that those academies, I think, have been really something that we
9: ought to give a lot of kudos to when those things have been going on. So Tony and his team uh, uh, led it, and it has been very well received. Uh, But I would, uh, for the sake of the current discussion, point out that uh, Rick, after he did his first lab, uh, told me that uh, folks told him that it was the highest or the best uh, a session they had had, and I had a hard time believing okay. that. Uh, so I, so, so I, valid, I validated it, and, uh, and they, 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 I, I said, "Is that true?" And they were like, "No, no, no, it really was. He did it. Excellent job, and he really enjoyed it. So he's 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 very well uh, regarded." I, not not because of Rick. I thought Rick would do a great job, but I was like, "You're telling me that they said compliance was the best session they had."
6: We <laughs> <laughs> trying to
9: make it not boring. <laughs> 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 we did right. a good
6: job. <laughs> I mean,
0: um, if we can make compliance fun,
3: that's the job well. done. yes, you need to come to my bank. <laughs> <laughs> Quick.
0: All right, a
5: competition, David. <laughs> <laughs>
6: Uh, so the rest of these things in here. Were there any questions on the other reports that have the follow-up yeah. items? The uh
3: on the penetration t- penetration testing, um, you would think that this chief information chief technology officer doesn't actually do the testing. So the fact that we're in transition of the CTO, I'm just curious why it's been postponed nine months.
6: So I'm actually working with IT on that. Uh, The new CIO has uh, had some additional ideas on how we can mitigate that much earlier. And uh, he's trying to develop a plan with uh, uh, with Velosum to uh, take some corrective action, get the uh, software updated. Uh, There was a a finding, one of the top three, uh, the Windows Server uh, unsupported. Uh, if they upgrade that to a more modern version that is supported, it eliminates a whole bunch of these other uh, right. items, and so he's trying to get that done, and hopefully it will be
9: in place by the time we meet next time. So just a point of correction, we're, we're, the CTO is not in transition. It's the same person. I, I used the wrong Yeah, mechanism. the CIO is, and, and as uh, Rick uh, pointed out, uh, uh, the CTO is not The sort of presumed solution to this was a longer term uh, transition for the the particular uh, application that we use that's uh, most vulnerable. And uh, uh, while that's likely to proceed, uh, uh, it it is still a slight chance it will not. And so my ammunition with with Rick's uh, uh, support was that they find a solution sooner. And as he mentioned, they are working on something they've actually even contacted the guy who developed or has managed that software who has since retired from the organization We still use it uh, to get the uh, access to it to actually make some of the changes that we may need to make to it sooner.
0: Okay. I I had a question on the HIPAA walkthrough through assessments. And um, anyone else had any questions? I
8: did on HIPAA too, but I'll I'll wait until you. So
0: yours were done, you did the walkthrough last October, right? So I can imagine like some of those badge readers or the key or the locks and things were back ordered or we need a little bit of time. But I was just wondering, like some of the low-hanging things, like screens and easy things, like why do we still have them until June of 2018 yes. to be done, privacy screens and things So the like privacy that. screens uh,
6: initially was reported as complete and then I did some follow-up work and what I found was that they did put privacy screens on a number of uh, computers mm-hmm. but there were still other computers that were public facing that didn't have them okay. and so I said okay no you're not done and uh we went back to the drawing board and then they've got to order things and, and get these implemented so it's uh, I I was pushing back on these dates but this is the date that I've been given so far and okay. I'm pushing for corrective action on all of these items. Okay. Uh, some of the other ones like uh, programming the uh, print, uh, print printers down. fax mm-hmm. machines so that we don't miss dial a number uh, requires some IT assistance or uh, I, I recommended that they go to these uh, print stations where you have to scan your bag and a badge in order to print a document instead of printing things and letting them sit there on the printer all day. Uh, but then sometimes that's going to require upgrading a printer because the, some of the older ones don't accommodate yeah. that. Mm-hmm. We some
3: have newer ones, and they don't accommodate
6: it. And so we're trying to problem. go work through all those logistics uh, in, in conjunction with IT and with facilities management. Uh, but we're trying to implement some uh, short-term solutions to mitigate the issues uh, as we go. Okay. Mm-hmm. Thank you. So, yeah. for yeah. instance, the privacy screens, they implemented the white noise in some areas. Mm-hmm. And it, it deadens the sound and it doesn't carry as much but we still don't have the barriers between uh, the workstations and, and that's actually i
8: think the question i was going to have what is the redesign of the registration area and what what does that
6: include well so i mean i've seen the I, it's the old style calendar right now and it's thing. like like dave and i sitting here at this right. table and we're both talking about our medical issues and we're out in the open, and so we can start communicating about it with each other. Mm -hmm. Uh, What I'm asking them to do is put up some kind of a privacy panel so that uh, we're not shoulder-to-shoulder and and sharing our ideas, and in some cases, it's kind of like when you go to the pharmacy and they say, stand back here for privacy, Uh, implement some kind of a line so that people are not crowding up next to each other. In some of the areas that we went
8: in, it was just kind of chaotic. Just one really uh, long counter, and everybody just went up to the counter at the same time.
6: Yeah, and they're all screaming about their medical information at once, and it's like, no, that's not the way it should work. Right, yeah,
8: and I know a number of organizations that kind of went overboard in that, too, but I mean, I think there are some simpler solutions, and I think you're, you're hitting upon them,
6: yeah. It doesn't have to be a private room, but at least you know, give them a privacy curtain, or a code of silence, or something. You know, Little divider the, <laughs> the, the
1: illusion oh, sure. of privacy. Yes. You, know, you know, when I read this one, I thought, I wonder if, um, just philosophically around compliance, ideally, you want to get the people who are there every day in that space thinking about. <coughs> And, and other issues. So, I'm wondering if you have any sense of where the management there has changed the way they're working. Because I look at these and some of these are like pretty common sense. There's obviously not been thinking within that space about this. So, in some cases, I think they, uh,
6: they never would have thought they were so busy with their day to day activities that. It just didn't dawn on them. And then when we did the walkthrough and started putting these things out, they're like, whoa, oh, okay, I should have recognized that. Uh, So we did the audit in October, and in November during Compliance Week, uh, one of my uh, compliance staff and I did walkthrough at uh, some of the freestanding facilities, and he was the one that did the uh, HIPAA assessment. And several people in management stopped him and said, when are you coming back? We want you to do a follow-up and see that we're improving. So they're they're starting to think about these things and having the Leadership Academy and putting these things out. I think that's
5: been a real gut-send for the organization. Yeah, and the people I talked to at the Academy, you know, they were really so appreciative and said this the first time that they have been able to really do this kind of stuff. So I, I really commend you for putting that together.
0: Mm-hmm. So are there any other
6: questions about the follow-up, please? No. And again, I, I have the uh, compliance assessment report recommendations from Cog and uh, making progress I don't like it when i'm the the one that's got their head on the line here but uh i i did have to push back a couple of dates because i was uh, over aggressive uh, thinking that the charter might be approved last uh meeting and Mm uh rescheduled it for this meeting uh, so we'll we'll, we'll continue to uh you know make progress there
3: with regard to the phone line reporting process I thought we would ask a time or two ago to maybe see um, a redacted registry of the calls we get on the hotline so that we see or see a volume report or to see what type of things people were phoning in on. Um, I we'd ask for that or wanted yeah, to comment on that. We did okay. that, yeah. Yeah. That would, that would be something that
8: I could do. Is that difficult?
4: Uh, no. okay. Just I really I like a
8: summary report with categories,
0: I think, is what we... Yeah. Yeah. I think you have reported somewhere that it went up, but, yeah. what are the, some of the categories, yeah.
6: Yeah, so I was actually trying to produce a report uh, the last time I was with the uh, executive leadership team. They were asking for a report by SBU, and so I was developing a report that would uh, kind of identify... The issues that were reported within their SBU so that they could look at that and uh, maybe take some. Without the name, the name of the person who made the call, right? Right, right. Uh, very vague, high level uh, topics that
1: were being reported.
0: That would be helpful for us to bring to the next yes. meeting.
1: Mm-hmm
0: and the compliance program report. No, any questions
3: on that one? How serious is the multiple stolen prescription pads? Uh,
6: There's been a lot of uh, commotion about it because, in some cases, uh, the doctors feel like their identities have been stolen. Uh, especially if they were identified as the patient uh, that was receiving the prescription. Uh, We've we've actually taken some steps to uh, secure those prescription pads during the day because in in some cases they were being left in uh, open uh, cubby holes or laying on a countertop or or they walk around with them in their pocket and they fall out I mean, things happened uh, so we're, we're still working <coughs> on the issue to see if there was a, potentially uh, an employee involved uh, we did have a former employee that was involved and has been arrested uh, but you know in the meantime we're securing things and some of that takes some uh, engineering help because we need some blockable cabinets where these could be put in, or we're using the Pixels machines that are used to dispense drugs mm-hmm. uh, and put them in there so that you have to go in and uh, punch it to, to get a prescription pad out and, and write your, your prescription.
5: That's it.
6: And EPIC changes that, though, doesn't it? Uh, So one of the things that we tried to do was uh, an e-prescribe process where we could do it online and and eliminate the prescription pads. Mm -hmm. But it was uh, not cost beneficial at this time, but
1: EPIC will have that uh, feature. Right. Missing pads require a. Disclosure of the federal government, doesn't it? What the uh, prescription pad? Yeah. Yes. Yeah, yeah. uh, so that was one of the things
6: that we found out when we started looking into this. Is yeah, I, I lost one. Well, did you report it? Right. Well, no. Do I have to? Yes. Did <laughs> you yeah. report it for me? No. You have to do that. So I mean, we have uh, set up a whole process for how they're going to do the reporting to Cures, and okay. uh, we've actually been working with. Uh, some of the Cure staff to uh, identify additional pads that uh, appear to be fraudulent that are prescriptions that that we didn't even know had been stolen. So, uh, yeah, it's it's an ongoing thing, but uh, I don't see it real bad, especially now that we've kind of controlled the source. Mm All right,
0: any other questions? Calendar. I think um, we do have that, and uh, we talked about having at least one or maybe even two educational sessions for the full board and um, a year. Um, and I know that the next few months of the full board meeting are going to be very much taken up with, uh, budget. The, with the budget. But if we can plan, because we meet next June, but if we can plan, I, I think it would be really helpful for the full board if they got the compliance uh, assessment plan that you have. Like, So our, um, just a high level compliance program assessment recommendations and our action plan for what, do you think that could be a, a good one for the board?
5: Well, you could have to joke, I don't know what what Joe and Delvecchio talked about relative to the to the retreat. retreat. But you might make it as, you know, one session or one hour a part of the retreat. So that's a possibility.
6: I could do the condensed compliance skills lab. Oh, yes. I'll make it three hours instead of three and a
1: half. Can <laughs> 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 you do that in
0: an hour? 35 minutes. Okay. And
1: then we can judge whether it's as popular <laughs> as the <laughs> CEO said it was. Like I could do the compliance.
0: So the retreat is at your level. Like, well. I would have so been well. like there for two yeah. days yeah. and maybe one, and a day and a half we could squeeze in something on internal audit compliance during that, uh, Mr. Stanley. Oh, I'll ask him you. I'll speak with Joe. So too.
6: actually I'm, I'm uh, in the process of redoing the uh, compliance module for uh, corporate competencies that all employees are required to take every year, and I'm trying to cut it down right now, it's about a hundred slides,
5: oh, God. Uh,
6: <laughs> 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 lots of, uh, you know, few words, lots of white space, uh, but I'm trying to do a conv- condensed version, so there's probably something that I could do that would be less than an hour. Okay.
0: Yeah, last time I think we did the seven OIG meetings, okay, okay. and that was really good. One, I think, in 20, not twenty seventeen, but in twenty sixteen. so this kind of a model would be helpful. So I think that's it. We do. Do we have any requests for public comment? We do not. All right.
3: I move. A second.
0: Any other uh, comments from Mr. Weepy, Mr. we Anything that you want to let the Audit um, Committee know, or are we good to
5: go?
4: I think we're good. All right. So, John. Thank you all. I'm just disappointed I can't